All right. In our last two classes, we learned about the goodness of God and how the sin of Adam created a chasm between man and God that could not be bridged. And the only person that can bridge that chasm is Jesus Christ, which is why it is so important that we understand who He is. And to describe this, those that came before us have coined the term person of Christ. Bound up in His person is His nature, essence, offices, and titles. And this is so important because in Acts 4.12, the verse tells us salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Put simply, only the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, can save. Not the Jesus of other false religions, not the Jesus that people make up in their own minds. And now, if you're not a believer, it's important to know that you don't need to know all this to be saved. However, you do need to turn from your sin and put your faith in the true Jesus for salvation. So first we're going to examine his nature, that he is fully God and fully man. And then we're going to look at his three offices and titles, which are Christ the second Adam, Christ our high priest and sacrifice, and Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords. So first let's talk about his deity As we try to wrap our minds around these glorious truths, we must start from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In these verses, John is referring to Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 6 through 16 tells us, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. This gives us light into Genesis 1.1 where it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And only God has the ability to create ex nihilo, which means to create something out of nothing. And because all things were created by Him and through Him, Jesus is God. Specifically, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And to clarify, the Trinity means there is only one God, however, He eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our next section, Born of the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at how Jesus was birthed into His creation. So, the coming of Christ was only fixed to happen one way, through the virgin birth. In this section, we're going to talk about the divine element of the virgin birth. And in the next section, we're going to talk about the human element. In the Gospels, Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by sexual relation with Joseph. 1 John 4.9 tells us, In this the love of God has been revealed among us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him, so that... So we have the Son of God who existed eternally with the Father in perfect union and relationship 
obeying the Father and being sent into the world as a helpless baby. Now, He was not just human. He is and always will be the Son of God. And through this miraculous birth, via the Father and the Spirit, He added to Himself a human nature. Thus being one person, having two natures, being fully man and fully God. And this mystery of the faith is no easier to wrap your mind around than the Trinity, so um, it just is what it is. Um, the most important thing is to remember that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Now, now we're going to talk about statements that he said that confirm his deity. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 49, and John 2.16, Jesus refers to the temple as my Father's house. In John 8.18 8, and 19, Jesus said, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who bears witness, and the Father who bears, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, who is your father? And Jesus answered, you neither know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Here Jesus is explicitly saying, he and the father are one. And if they knew God, they would know him because he is God. Later in chapter 8, the Pharisees say, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here, Jesus is not only saying that he existed before Abraham, he is saying, he's ascribing the same word that God used to describe himself at the burning bush, which is I am, the eternal, self existent, self sufficient God of the universe. And for this statement, they tried to stone him. In John 10 27 through 30, Jesus makes another bold statement My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we can go on all night just talking about this, but there's some additional uh, verses you can examine on your own time in your handout, and there's even more than that. Um, so now we're going to talk about his humanity and how he was born of a woman. Okay? Isaiah 7.14 reads, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years after this was written down, this prophecy came to mass, came to came to pass when Mary was uh, when uh, the Holy Spirit conceived Christ in Mary. Uh, Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly because he thought that she cheated on him. However, in Matthew chapter 1 verse 20, the word of God tells us, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him saying, Joseph, son of David, do not, fear, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And in order, for, in order to fulfill this ministry, Jesus had to be human. So God in His perfect wisdom worked within Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, to bring about this miracle. God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, caused Mary to become pregnant with a child. This child was the Son of God. And again, through the virgin birth, He was able to add to Himself a human nature. It's really important to like understand that. He added to Himself a human nature. Now, because Jesus was fully human, He was able to experience everything we experience. Pain, having a broken heart, joy, peace, everything except for sin. And as a human being, Jesus Christ lived in perfect obedience to the will of the Father in thought and deed. And our imperfect sinful lives can be saved through His sacrifice for us on the cross. Now, we're going to talk about more of His human nature with the temptation of Jesus. Another of this, another example, again, is in the temptation in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So as a human being, He was led by the Spirit. And this is one of those mysteries that is hard to wrap our mind around because He's also fully God. And while His direction is directly from the Father and received by the Holy Spirit, and, and He receives His direction from the Father by the Holy Spirit in the same way we receive direction uh, from the Father via the Holy Spirit. What makes us different is we have our flesh, and that tends to get in the way because of our sin. Okay? So, I'm going to read one verse in the, uh, the temptation in the wilderness. And I'm going to start in verse 3. And the tempter came to Him and said... If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he does this again and again, and he resists temptation by referring to the Word of God. And the temptation shows us what's possible for us as human beings when we depend on God and it shows us that there is hope that we can overcome temptation too. And that because Jesus went through these things, He can relate to us. Um, Hebrews 14, 15, or, excuse me, 14, excuse me, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and find grace to help in the time of need. And hang on to that verse for later because it's, it's profound. Now we're going to talk about the unity in His being. And as we start this section, I want to make you aware of a theological tar- term called the uh, hypostatic or hypostatic union. And that just means that his two natures are inseparable. He's fully God, fully man, 100% of the time, even when he seems to be acting in a human nature or acting more like God. And as you're reading Scripture, it's important to just keep that in mind. Um, 
Now, the most profound example on the pages of Scripture regarding the unity in Christ being can be found at the cross. The cross and what Jesus did are not just an important time in history. They are the most important event of all time. It is where we see all of the attributes of God on full display. His love, His mercy, His justice, His wrath, His immutability, all of His attributes. And meditating on the cross should take our breath away. I mean, because number one, it was for God's glory, but it was also to save us. Now, and here we see the perfect plan of salvation in Christ. Salvation would not work if, if Jesus was just a man or if... Um, excuse me one second here. It wouldn't work if he was a man just possessed by the Spirit, nor would it have worked if he descended directly from heaven and just put on a human frame. Sorry about that. I lost my place here. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the humanity of Christ. It is where he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It is here that Jesus began to feel the full weight of the Father's perfect justice. He was in agony. He was sweating drops of blood. And this was no ordinary cup. It was the cup of God's wrath. Every sin that man committed, past, present, and future, uh, rape, murder, lying, extortion, laziness, slavery, racism, um, all of it. And the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary without original sin, who lived in perfect obedience to the Father every second of His life, took our punishment for our sin. And, and He didn't deserve it. Our sin was imputed to Him, which means He was punished as if He was a sinner. And in the same way, we are considered righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus has, has done, even though we are still sinners. Jesus would be arrested, mocked, beaten, framed, betrayed by His friends, whipped with a flagellum. He felt this pain as a man. Yet, he knew exactly what he was doing because he was God. With his flesh ripped off his back, he was forced to carry a heavy crossbeam up to Golgotha where nails would be driven through his hands and his feet. He would be raised up on a cross now with all of his body weight hanging on the nails. And there on the cross with people mocking him, he couldn't breathe because he was drowning. And to not drown, he would have to push himself up on the nails. And none of that compared to the wrath of God that was being poured out on him because of our sin and for the sins of the world. And again, he experienced this punishment as a man, but at the same time, He's also God, so he was able to absorb that without being completely obliterated. 
And again, he experienced this, and he, and, he, and he willingly did this for us. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And finally, when his work is done, he gives up his spirit, and only God alone has the authority to do that. In John 10, 18, Jesus says regarding his life, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. And after being buried for three days, he rose again, proving he was God, triumphing over sin in the grave, while still being fully man and fully God, only in a glorified state. And we will be in that glorified human state when we're resurrected as well. Obviously not the the Son of God part. Alright, so now we're going to talk about the person of Christ and the Gospels. And we barely scratched the surface there, but we can see more about who Christ is in His titles and His offices. So we have the second Adam, our high priest and our sacrifice, and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And remember, this is not so you can have head knowledge. This is so you can use this knowledge to fall more in love with Christ. And for those of you that don't know Him, be persuaded to to follow Him because He's real. So, Christ as the second Adam. For this section, our focus is going to be on Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. On your handouts, you only have verses 16 and 17. Uh, You can turn there in your Bibles if you want. So, Right away we see in verse 12 where Pastor Damien talked about last week about how when Adam sinned, all of his offspring inherited it. All the entire human race. Death and sin spread to everyone. And this should remind us of how holy God is because just one sin was enough to separate mankind from God. And Paul makes a point in verse 13 that yes, people sinned before the law was given, and he says something interesting. He says, It is not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Now, Paul is not saying those who lived before the Mosaic law were not guilty of sin. He is saying sin, and, he's, he's saying sin and his effects were always present. However, in times past, they were not yet defined under the Mosaic law. And in verse 14, Paul goes on to say that Adam was a symbol and representation of Christ who was yet to come. Adam was created in the image of God and not born with a sin nature. He was given dominion over all the earth. However, he is imperfect and insufficient because he chose to sin against God, therefore forfeiting his dominion and passing on his sin to all future generations of mankind. And now for the good news. In, verse 15 through, in verses 15 through 17, Paul writes, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God through the, for, through the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift allowing many trespasses brought justification. For, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. And before we move on, I want to... I mean, we've all... Everybody in this room both saved and unsaved, inherited a gift from Adam. Sin and death. Um, so, yeah. But thank God the gift that comes from God is not like that gift. The, the free gift from God is undeserved favor and grace. The, gift of, the free gift of grace that comes from God is a result of one man's righteous act, Jesus Christ. Verse 16 tells us that this righteous act brought justification. That means what we talked about last week, the righteous justice from God that we deserve for our sins is completely paid for by what Jesus did on the cross. Our criminal rap sheet before God is completely erased because Jesus, the perfect man, takes our sins away. And in verse 17, Paul highlights the humanity of Christ by referring to him in the same way as he refers to Adam, as the one Man, He also makes a comparison between them, explaining how death reigned because of the trespass of Adam. And did Adam accomplish anything special? No, he sinned against God. That was his accomplishment. But what did Jesus do? He lived a perfect, sinless life in obedience to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took the punishment for our sins, died, rose again, ascended, and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father with the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The accomplishments of the first Adam are filthy rags compared to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer, I pray that your response to this would be to give your life to Christ. And how do you do this? Well, You don't have to accomplish anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to add up your good deeds. The answer is you don't have to do anything except the free gift in Christ that God gives to you. Exchange the misery of sin and death for the gift of righteousness and eternal life that is in Jesus Christ. And what does it mean for those of us who are already recipients of this amazing grace. Well, for starters, it means we should be eternally grateful. We should love the gift, and we should love the giver of the gift. Paul later writes in Romans 6, verses 17 through 18, Thank God, once you who were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you, Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. We are set free from the bondage of sin and death that we inherited from Adam, and we have the ability to live righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. And if we falter in sin, we must remember that Christ never faltered or sinned, and that our righteousness is found in Him. Okay, now moving on to our next section, Christ, our high priest, and our sacrifice. 
The office of high priest was instituted by God and given to Aaron in the book of Exodus. Any priest that came after had to be directly traced back to Aaron. The high priest had to be holy in his conduct and even free of physical defects. In Exodus 28, we see a beautiful symbolism in the instructions God gave for the clothing of the high priest. He had a breastplate where precious stones represented each tribe of Israel, as well as the names of the tribes on his shoulders and on his breast. He also had the Urim and the Thummim, which were two stones used to discern the will of God. There were five main types of sacrifices in the Old Testament. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. The first three were voluntary and were performed by the regular priests and also the high priest. All of them have significant in Christ. However, the guilt offering and the sin offering were mandatory and could only be performed by the high priest. And your ESV might say the anointed priest. And the word for anointed in the Hebrew is Mashika. This is the same word used when people call Jesus Messiah. The high priest and priests were people's representative and intermediaries before, in between God and man. Without their work and the shedding of blood through animal sacrifice, God could not be worshipped properly. And the work of the high priest was especially important because it involved atoning for sin. And the act of atonement occurs when the blood of an innocent substitute, in this case an animal, wiped away a person's sin and restored a right relationship with God. In the sin offering, the high priest sacrifices for his own sin, the Israelite community's sin, the leadership of Israel's sin, and the common people of Israel's sin. And the guilt offering was like the sin offering, only it involved an element of like financial restitution if something in the temple was damaged or um, if somebody took advantage of another person. Now, the most important duty of the high priest was to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement. This service, in this service, he had to complete over a dozen purification rituals just to enter the most holy place. And if he did one thing wrong, he would die. Once inside, the priest would offer incense and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was the Ten Commandments, a golden pot of manna and Aaron's almond rod. And the presence of God rested on the mercy seat, and that's where God met with His people. And it was the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat that covered the sin of the people for breaking God's law, which was literally inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Then after several more steps, the high priest took, the, took a goat and confessed all the sins of Israel over it and sent it into the wilderness where it would bear the iniquities of the people. Sound familiar? Now, now that we have a picture of the high priest and the sacrifices he conducted, we can now connect the dots back to the ultimate high priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Let's start with the clothing and the precious stones. These symbolize how Christ treasures those who are His and keeps them close to His heart. 
And the Urim and the Thummim used to discern the will of God were no longer needed because the high priest is now God. And here is where things really start to get incredible. Jesus Christ, our sin offering, just like the blood of an animal sacrifice covered sin then, covers the blood of Christ covers our sin now. Only the blood of Christ permanently wipes away our sin, and there is no need for a continual sacrifice. And not only is Jesus our sacrifice for sin, but He is our great high priest, set apart, holy, and interceding for us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 27 tells us, A high priest such as Christ truly benefits us, one who is holy, innocent, undefiled, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, unlike other high priests. He does, he does not need to offer daily sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for sin once for all when he offered it up himself. And the reality of Jesus being our sacrifice and high priest becomes even more profound when we look at the Day of Atonement, where the high priest went into the most holy place and atoned for the people by sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. Earlier we talked about Hebrews 14, 15, and four, excuse me, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. 16 says, Let us then draw, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that me, we may receive, excuse me, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The throne of grace represents the mercy seat, and the mercy seat is symbolic of Christ. This mercy seat that held back the judgment of God's law against sinners. Hebrews 9.12 tells us that Jesus, our high priest, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, and by the means, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, our eternal redemption. We are secure because Jesus atoned for our sin with His own blood. And He is the fulfillment of the mercy seat. And all those who believe in Him are not condemned by God's law. And if you're not a believer, that's your biggest problem. You have broken God's law and you have sinned before God. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9.22 tells us. And God does not change. That's still relevant today. However, today it is Christ that can cover your sins with the blood that He shed on your behalf. It doesn't matter if you're a good person or you try to live a good life. You are covered with a lifetime of intentional and unintentional sins that have not been dealt with. You need to be forgiven and you need to go to a priest. You need to go to the Anointed One, Jesus the Eternal High Priest. Put your faith and trust in Him to wash your sins away with His own sacrifice, making you who are guilty blameless in God's sight. And for those of us who already know Christ, we must always remember that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we have a perfect High Priest who made a perfect sacrifice. 
We don't have to be like the high priest in the Old Testament who was literally terrified of entering into the most holy place before God because he remembered those before him that died. Unlike them, we can enter boldly. Because of the sacrifice of our high priest, Jesus Christ. And we must remember that his priesthood is forever and his sacrifice is permanent. And more than that, he continues to be our representative in heaven, interceding for us still. He is the fulfillment of the question Job had thousands of years ago when he asked, if only there was a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. Talking about him and God. Jesus is our high priest. Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And finally, we must remember that because of Christ, we too are holy and set apart. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And now, to the third office entitled that Jesus holds, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 700 years before Christ, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 10-12, through 12, this was prophesied regarding the Lord Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, he, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an end, makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This verse is incredible because it sums up everything that we've been talking about, including the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I believe that verse from Revelation that was on the song sheet has two of them in it as well. So the foreshadowing in this verse shows us that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, he was given a new mission by God. Or, I mean, he had this mission before time, but in that time it it became new. One where he would prosper and divide the spoil with the strong. And only kings conquer and divide the spoil. And before we move on, it's important for us to see how Christ became king. So after the resurrection, Jesus triumphed over sin and death, but there was still one more thing that had to happen. And that was his ascension. In Luke 22, after Jesus was taken prisoner by the elders and being questioned, if he was the Christ, this is what he said. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And we later see in Luke 24, 51, and Mark 16, and Acts 1, that after Jesus commissioned to the, the disciples, he ascended to heaven. And when his ascension was complete, he was given the title 
King of kings and Lord of lords. We see this in prophecy in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. In Philippians 2, 9 and 11, the Apostle Paul writes of Christ's ascension and kingship, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Christ Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and, under, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we don't have time, but I would suggest reading Psalm 2, Psalm 2, excuse me, Psalm 2, the whole, the whole of it. Daniel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, and the rest of Psalm 110. And there are several chapters where you can catch this in the book of Revelation. These verses tell us that Jesus is king right now, and everyone should submit to him. However, because he's merciful, he doesn't force people to obey him. But there will come a time where people will not have a choice. They will bend the knee. And even now, again, even now he, was, he is king. The only difference is we as believers acknowledge him as Lord and submit our lives to him. And unbelievers don't. And if you're not a believer, it doesn't change the fact that he still rules and reigns. And it's because of his grace and desire to see none perish and all to be saved that you have not been punished for your sin yet. And as king, he has authority over you when you die, and you will answer to him in judgment. And because you did not believe in him and submit to his lordship, he will cast you into hell for all of eternity. Psalm 2.12 tells us, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in your rebellion when his wrath ignites in an instant. In times past, when you entered a king's presence unannounced and he didn't extend the golden scepter to you, it would mean certain death. We see this in the book of Esther in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even the half of my kingdom. King Jesus is superior in every way. When you walk into his court, his scepter is always extended. And if you trust in him, he will give you so much more than half the kingdom. He will save you from your sins. He will love you. He will forgive you. He will adopt you. He will give you righteousness, bless you, and you will reign with him for all of eternity. So, in light of the gospel, what we should do as believers in this present reality is serve the Lord and rejoice in fear and troubling. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. Make no mistake, Jesus demands our allegiance and our continued submission to Him. Let this be a reminder that we must serve Him with fear and reverence. We were not saved just because we were not saved. We were saved to be a part of His kingdom and to point others to Him. And why wouldn't we when we consider who He is and what He's done for us? Putting on humanity, identifying with us, being an example 
for us, taking our punishment for sins, defeating sin and death, rising from the dead, ascending to the Father, giving us His righteousness, washing our sins away, and continually interceding for us, and so much more. That is a King we should joyfully give our lives to because there is truly none like Him. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank You uh, for this time. Uh, Thank You for being an example for us um, as the second Adam. Thank You for being our High Priest and our sacrifice. And thank You for being um, our our faithful King. Uh, Lord, help help us to love You and honor You. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.